of course, salmon are born in right. fresh water and they make that transition into salt water. But it is, mm. um, it is the only facility of its kind anywhere in the world, um, which, it, whilst it's unique in the one hand, it does bring its own problems. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to episode 24 of the Maritime Outdoorsman podcast. And today I'm going to be talking with um, the fellow behind Sustainable Blue. And this kind of ties into the whole aquaculture issue and the impact on wild salmon stocks and all of that. Um, so thanks for tuning in. Hope you find this discussion interesting. And, uh, here goes. Hey, I just wanted to take a minute now to thank my friends at Flowers River Lodge, Hawk River Outfitters, and Crooks Lake Lodge for sponsoring today's episode. If you haven't been to Labrador to any of these three lodges, fly fishing for trophy Atlantic salmon or brook trout, I would highly encourage you to take a look. Just go to maritimeoutdoorsman.com Labrador and find out everything you need to know there. All right, so I'm uh, I'm connected now with um, with Kirk Havercroft. Did I pronounce your last name right there, Kirk? Yep, that's correct. Yep. Excellent. Uh, with Sustainable Blue, and um, you know this issue, uh, the issue sort of surrounding this whole episode of the podcast is, um, is is a close one for me. In fact, back on episode nine. Um, I did a, a show about the impact of aquaculture and that sort of thing. And, and um, you know, actually myself and my wife for a number of years now have boycotted uh, typical farm-raised salmon. Um, she loves Atlantic salmon. I, I do as well, but it's been, it's been most difficult for her. And then um, not that long ago, I actually probably, you know, a year ago or so, I heard about Sustainable Blue. Um, and, uh, we had the pleasure of, uh, enjoying our first Atlantic salmon dinner with sustainable blue, uh, salmon just, uh, a number of weeks ago. And it was fantastic. That was at, um, I believe it was at Shuck in Halifax. Um, so Kirk, maybe just, um, uh, maybe you can just take a, a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself and how, you know, you you came to be or this sustainable blue sort of came to be and where it came from. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, so I, uh, I met the founder of this project back in the UK. Uh, I met him about, uh, just a little over 20 years ago. Um, the company was founded by essentially by a scientist, uh, who went to university in Scotland, uh, did uh, marine biology uh, undergrad and then did a PhD eventually in offshore engineering. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Jeremy Lee, and uh, and he was a scuba diver whilst he was at university. And uh, he was struck by, and this this goes back thirty years now, but he was struck by how uh, destructive traditional fishing methods were, uh, particularly uh, bottom dragging, and and how it would uh, really decimate the uh, the ocean floor and his view was um you know if if we did this kind of thing on land then nobody would allow us to do it because people would be able to see the destruction and they wouldn't stand for it 
And if this is the future of the fishery, um, then aquaculture, I think, has to be the solution because this clearly is not sustainable and it's not it's certainly not ecologically responsible um but as a marine as a marine biologist he saw very early um the problems that um would eventually come to play out in open systems um cage farming of course is the most open of all systems but even land-based systems which are what we call flow through where uh, you draw water in from either the ocean or the river comes into your building, uh, you feed the fish, and then you just flush the waste straight out again. That's, uh, in our view, that has merits over and above traditional ocean, um, cage farming, but still it's an open system. So he very early on saw the limitations with that model of aquaculture. And at the time, he had a saltwater aquarium in his home keeping tropical fish. And he just, it struck him that, uh, look, if I can do this at home, if I can keep an isolated saltwater system at home and the box on the back is keeping it uh, nice and clean. Why can't I just use my, you know, chemistry and engineering knowledge to come up with a solution for this in um, land-based aquaculture? Because if we can truly close it down and break the link with the ocean altogether, then surely that would be the cleanest and safest method. Um, and the most portable as well. It would... Um, it will remove as well the geographical connection to being next to a coastal site. So if we can do this, ultimately we could put a saltwater fish farm uh, somewhere near Toronto, for example, where it could serve the market. Um, and so that, that, was the, that was the origin, that was the passion sort of 30 years ago. And um, he started applying chemistry to the problem because uh, the, the problem of saltwater aquaculture is, is literally that. It's chemistry. And uh, when you're feeding fish in a, in a, um, in a grow-out system, um, in processing the waste, they change the water chemistry dramatically. And, of course, you know, the, the cage farming industry just has the... Um, it doesn't have to worry about that because, uh, you know, the ocean just flushes that away and, it, and it's not a concern. Whereas for a land-based closed system, it's a, it's a very big concern. So he started by looking at the chemistry changes that occur when, when you're feeding fish in a closed system and started to look at the process that would be required to change the chemistry back to natural seawater very, very quickly. And when he identified all of those processes, he then went to look for equipment that would help him deliver those processes right at the heart of the treatment system. And there was none available because I think he realized at that point that he had identified a process which nobody else really um, was aware of. So at that point, then, he decided to use, you know, his engineering uh, knowledge with the chemistry knowledge and started designing his own equipment. Um, and I, I joined him in 1995 back in the UK and I was uh, just a finance, uh, a finance graduate. Um, and I, I joined him when he was doing some fairly exciting uh, projects in saltwater aquariums all around the world, large public aquariums. And he, he, he made it clear that, um, that he was building these aquariums um, in a commercial environment, and he was using the profits, basically, to generate the research that had to go into uh, aquaculture. So... Um, so I stayed, I stayed with the project. It was fascinating, and uh, 
by 2005, we were at the point where we felt it was time to get out of Aquaria and, and get into aquaculture, which was the thing that we had always wanted to use this technology for. Um, so we tried actually to do this project in the UK and, um, and of all things, we couldn't get planning permission. So, uh, so in 2000, uh, 2005, um, we'd already made, uh, it's a much longer story to have, but we'd already made some connections in aquaculture in Nova Scotia. Um, so we reanalyzed the project and said, um, you know, here was a, here was an opportunity to relocate, um, and perhaps into an even more lucrative environment, having access to the whole of North America. So that's what we did. Um, so the project arrived here in 2005. We didn't really, the first two years was site evaluation. Um, we finally identified our site in 2007, uh, started building the following year, and the first fish went into the farm in 2010. Um, and when we started, we didn't actually start with salmon. We started with other species, and we had some successes with that. But really, the last few years has all been about proving the technology and bringing it from the developmental stage to the commercial stage. And, um, and here we are now having really established our commercial footprint. Uh, we've refined all of our designs. We have a platform that's repeatable and ready to be expanded, um, having proven its uh, technological viability in a zero discharge environment. So I, I guess that's the, that's the long story as to how we got here. No, that's, that's a great, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. Lots of good information there. So is, is the facility that you guys have in center Burlington, Nova Scotia, is that the only facility? Is that basically the, the, the pilot, uh, sort of test area that that's now proven? It is. Yeah, it is. Um, Obviously, the site has expanded over the years, um, mm -hmm. and moving into salmon, we've had to put in a freshwater hatchery because, of course, salmon are born in right. freshwater, and they make that transition into saltwater. Mm -hmm. But it is, mm -hmm. um, it is the only facility of its kind anywhere in the world, um, which, it, whilst it's unique in the one hand, it does bring its own problems in the sense that it, right. It's often difficult to recruit people because nobody will ever have seen this kind of plant and equipment before. So it does just provide <laughs> some training challenges. But um, on the whole, um, you know, we, we think it's a, an extremely unique project. To the, to the best of our knowledge, we are the only um, operating uh, saltwater zero discharge aquaculture facility in the world, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, and that's I think that's the thing that struck me as as so incredible when when I first heard about it that you know the I think people need to understand that that the discharge from sustainable blue is you say how how is it you label it again but there's there's nothing uh harmful to the environment in that whatsoever. Well, exactly. Um there is there is nothing that goes to the environment would be um, right. would be the truth of it. So um, mm -hmm. people often wonder, um, and it's it's a it's a very reasonable question as to how that can be. So the the primary treatment process in the fish farm is is extremely efficient. So 
you know, more than every time the water goes around the loop. So it leaves the fish tanks dirty, goes through the treatment system, and then goes back to the fish tanks clean. And it does that at least once every hour. So every time it completes that loop, that process is, is very efficient. And 99 plus percent of the volume of water that completes that loop stays in that loop. But the, the small percentage or the fraction of a percentage that is taken out at that point with the waste removal process goes to separate settlement. And as that settlement builds up, the vast majority of that is actually still water. Only a small percentage of that is absolute solid waste. So we get to run a secondary treatment system at, um, at that point, which takes probably 36 hours to complete a re-sterilization loop. So what we have is we have the, the primary treatment and the secondary treatment that run simultaneously. Um, and so overall, it is um, extremely efficient um, at reusing all of the water that's extracted as a result of the process. Now, eventually, the solids do build up over a period of time, and historically what we've done, about once every year, we'll get a company with a septic truck, and they will come in and empty the solids that have accumulated over time, and they just they take them to landfill. But in the future, we could... Uh, you know, we could turn that effluent into a commercial fertilizer. That's one of the things that we'd like to look at in the future. Sure. Yeah. That sounds like a great idea. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm assuming that because this is um, just the way it is and uh, so unique and, you know, where you're trying to accomplish this on land that, that all comes with a cost. I mean, you know, as opposed to the the existing aquaculture that we've seen that's, you know, destroying our coastline and our native Atlantic salmon stocks and all that stuff. So I'm assuming there is a bit of more of a cost and perhaps a little bit more of a cost to the end user when all this is said and done. Um, there is. Uh, the capital cost of um, building a land-based farm, certainly for sustainable blue. I, I can't speak to any other land-based producer because I, I don't know mm -hmm. their models, but mm -hmm. certainly the capital costs for us are significantly higher than, um, than a cage farming operation. Um, that does eventually translate into the price that's paid for the product at the end of the day. Sure. But sure. There's a, there's a, in my view, there's a great deal of misunderstanding about that. So people often come to me and say, um, that uh, the price of your product in the, in the grocery store is higher than a conventional salmon. That must be because you're a land-based producer and your cost of production is higher, right? And I always say, yeah. I always say well, actually, that's, that's not the case. Um, the reason that the product is more expensive is, is significantly to do with the fact that we are a very small operation. And any small operation by nature is inefficient. Mm -hmm. So if we took uh, one of the cage farming companies and asked them to produce only 200 tons of salmon every year instead of the tens of thousands of tons that they get to produce, mm -hmm. then yeah. their product would be a similar price to ours. So right. the challenge for us is to attract investment, expand as quickly as we can. Uh, we're doing that currently by 
you know, with, with present infrastructure, we're capable of producing 200 tons of salmon a year maximum at the moment. Mm-hmm. But we're currently building an, an additional module that will take that to 500 tons of production. And that will come online okay. in March of next year. So the more that we can expand, um, the more that we bring economies of scale to the operation. And the one thing that we have to remember is whilst our capital costs are higher than a cage farm, and whilst we do have a power cost or a utility cost that the cage farms mm-hmm. Don't, mm-hmm. don't have, right. we also have to remember that we have a much faster growth rate than the cage than the cage farms, simply because... Yeah, what is the growth rate? So, um, from a sort of 100-gram smalt that just goes into, has just gone into salt water, um, to a, a three-and-a-half, four-kilo adult salmon, takes us 12 months. And wow. in a sea cage, to the best of my understanding, uh, depending on where in the world you're doing that, that would be anywhere between 18 and 22 months. Mm. So the that's, faster, that's incredible. Yeah, the faster growth rate, of course, we get simply because we can hold the water temperature at the at the temperature where salmon grow best, and that's about 14, 15 degrees. So we're not having to endure cold winters where the salmon don't particularly feed right. very well. Um, right. Right. So there's a great offset there, you know, to the extra cost that we have. But I would I would say this is a final comment that. Um, even if we were raising, uh, I, I, I think the whole of Canada produces somewhere in the region of, um, well, certain, certainly tens of thousands of metric tons of salmon in cages mm-hmm. uh, that's sold into the U.S. If we could match that, if we could match that, um, I don't think that our product should ever be priced at the same level as the commodity salmon that, that's produced right. i think i think there right. always needs to be a price premium because it's a it is a different product in my view yeah for sure um you know it, it, like i say i just we had our first taste of it a number of weeks ago it was fantastic um you know we 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 acknowledge that you know it it did cost a little bit more than if we went to uh, maybe a different restaurant and just got regular farm salmon, but we were not interested in that. And I think more people are starting to realize, you know, the the harm that the cage uh, the cage facilities do, and you know, people are becoming more aware of you know saving the environment and and um, and doing things like this. So it's uh, it's great to see that you guys are doing this, and that you know, hopefully, it's going to continue to expand. And, um, so how, um, you know, for people in Atlantic Canada, how many different, um, restaurants approximately, I guess, grocery stores and restaurants, I, I'm, I haven't done a lot of research on exactly where the product is going, but, um, maybe, you know, how many, how approximately how many locations are there that where people can, can, uh, can actually find sustainable blue product? Well, that's an interesting point because as of now, we are completely sold out. Uh, we had some <laughs> initial initial batches that went through um, were followed by a much larger production batch coming in the background, and that's just the way that you do land-based farming to condition mm-hmm. the systems um, at the start of the operation. 
Now, those we were hoping those opening batches, we could just moderate uh, the amount of product that goes out so it would stretch right the way through. But as soon as we went into the market with the product, it just sold out so quickly. And so mm. um, we're now here sitting waiting for, um, if you like, the main production batches to come through. So in a couple of months, we'll be back into the market. And um, uh, it, we are at the moment dealing exclusively with uh, one wholesaler in Halifax. And okay. um, uh, we work with them because the whole business is based around uh, sustainable, ethically sourced, and responsibly mm -hmm. sourced products. So it's a perfect fit for us. They're called uh, aficionado fishmongers in Halifax. They also have a okay. CFIA processing plant, so they do all of our processing. Um, so they, what we're hoping is that um, we'll be able to see this in retail outlets um, throughout HRN, and on the Sustainable Blue website and on the Aficionado website, we will post where the product's available. But Aficionado also has a, um, a community-based buying program where you can buy the fish online and there are multiple pickup locations around HRN and also up mm. into the Annapolis Valley. So we're doing our best to make sure that people do have access to the product. Awesome. So for now... Is is the bulk of the product being distributed in Atlantic Canada, or or is there is there product going outside? Well, at, at, sorry, as I um, just just referred to, at, at the moment um, we are we're totally sold out and not distributing. But in yeah. in a couple of months' time, um, we will start with. Um, we'll start with Nova Scotia only to begin with, and then we'll expand mm -hmm. to the whole of Atlantic Canada. Um, and then we'll go as far as Toronto. And then mm -hmm. with additional product that we'll have coming online when the new facilities open next year, that will be our springboard into the U.S. market so that we'll look to place product down in New York and Boston. And we've already made inquiries down there and sort of preliminary Excellent. discussions with, with partners who are going to carry the product there. Excellent. No, that, this it sounds great. It's very exciting. Um, you know, I'm glad that the response has been so good for you guys. Um, and again, anybody listening, um, you know, if you're out, you know, if you're considering buying Atlantic salmon, you know, and it's available, you know, and the the future batches are uh, are out and in circulation, then you know, by all means, check out Sustainable Blue. Find a restaurant that uh, that serves sustainable blue product. Um, it's you know you're going to support uh, a great cause and um, you know and help avoid the uh, you know the damage that the the standard aquaculture uh, industry that I feel is doing. And I, I talked about this in episode nine of the podcast, as I mentioned. But um, Kirk, I really appreciate your time. I I, I uh, uh, it was great learning about Sustainable Blue and what you guys are up to. Now, do you guys give tours of the facility? Um, that's something I know I, I hope to do myself, but is it something that you know anybody who's interested could? Or um, In principle, we, we do. Uh, we've, um, I was counting the other day. We've done uh, um, 27 tours so far this year. Okay, um, okay. So uh, we definitely do. What we prefer is if there is a community or if there are members of the community who want to uh, tour the facility, 
what yeah. we do is we, we try and ask if they sort of could get all of those members together and, and do sort <laughs> of 12, yeah. 12 people in one tour, which is, which is a lot more right. efficient for us. But, uh, and yes. we usually need a couple of weeks' notice, but, uh, but we sure. are very amenable to, uh, to public tours, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Sounds great, Kirk. Um, again, thanks for your time this morning, and hopefully we can help get the word out. And uh, we'll keep in touch with you and, um, and all the developments with Sustainable Blue. So if anybody wants to uh, learn more, they can, go to, they can just Google Sustainable Blue, or you can go to uh, the show notes for this episode, which is episode 24. So you just go to maritimeoutdoorsman.com slash 024, and you can find a link in the show notes. Thanks again, Kirk. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for the interest, David. Uh, I appreciate that too. All right, perfect. Thank you. Thanks. Bye now. So again, thanks to Kirk Havercroft with Sustainable Blue for having that discussion with me today. I hope you find that interesting. Uh, we just wanted to expose everyone to um, how this land-based aquaculture uh, business is doing very well and hopefully will have a bigger impact on the whole aquaculture industry as a whole um, just purely because you know there's so many negatives that come from the open net sea pen um, aquaculture end of things so again thanks to kirk for taking the time to do that today thank you for listening and uh, you can catch the show notes at maritimeoutdoorsman.com slash 024. Take care and have a great day.